tinfoil hat. Oh, what the fuck are you guys even talking about? Global controls will have to be imposed. And a world governing body will be created to enforce them. Welcome to tinfoil hat. We, we, we go deep, homeboy. Eric, open your mind. Drink. To Xavier Guerrero and his beef jerky, and shout out to Jay Nice, Johnny Woodard. Guys, we're a week out. Shout Are out. you excited? Shout out. Oh, yeah. Yep. Are you excited? What is this? Is this one of those things where we're supposed to get louder each time? <laughs> yeah, know. fuck yeah, buddy. Like I'm a excited. DJ. Oh, I'm yeah. excited. We're all excited. <laughs> Shit. Yeah. Arsenio, you, know? you are. <laughs> yeah, you are so white. So what, nice. dude? You didn't watch Arsenio? Come oh on. yeah, when raising the roof. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Remember people, that, dude? Yeah, that was like so the biggest bad. thing in the night. White people just wanted like black people uh, so badly <laughs> back then, right? They just wanted. Well, that's they, what they did. They woo, made woo, it. Woo, they woo. made like black culture accessible to white people by by giving us that the woo, woo, woo yeah, yeah. I mean, it was a beautiful time, and that time does not. I mean, like, look at all the talk show hosts now compared to what it used to be. I mean, maybe it's always been like that. I don't know, but... I don't think so, dude. No, those guys had edge, man. They had... Like, think about who would you rather hang out with? The talk show hosts of the early 90s when you had Letterman, mm-hmm. Carson, Arsenio... The question is this, Johnny. Leno to Does Center. anyone seem happy now no, in no. any of this stuff? No. no. None of them seem happy. Does everyone seem happy back then? No. No, I mean Carson. You know he was uh, drunk, and, and and Letterman. We know was he's never happy. It's it's just weird because it's like the but time they, now is like yeah. they're, they're if you funny. could have back then, but of the access today, meaning like you know, it, it meaning like not cultural Marxism, but everybody getting an opportunity. Like at the end of the day, I don't know what you mean. I just feel like if I could get a little bit of the past and a little bit of the presence, I'd be happy. Yeah. Well, I'd just rather have the hosts from the past because they're funny. Yeah, but they would have to play by the rules of today. So they w- Johnny Carson would be a vaccine. Oh, da, he'd be da, canceled. Da, da, da. He'd be canceled. They yeah. all would be canceled. Yeah. You know, it's it, it, David Letterman. How do you think he would do? He'd be canceled, yeah. Right? Like I, that That would be bullying. Remember when we had Paris Hilton on <laughs> and she was just kind of a bitch to him and yeah. he destroyed her? Yeah. That and would do, be bullying. Do you remember, like, you know, how they were saying that Jon Stewart's new show is like, like from the past, yeah, it's like it's so good. Yeah, I saw it. Yeah, and you correct. watch it, you go, the fact that you think this from the past lets you know that that you realize what you do is mediocre, and you have to somehow taint this thing. That was Alan Alan Seppenwall from uh, Rolling Stone. And if you look, all the comments were like, "What the fuck are you talking about? We liked the show in the past, so why why would we it not want excellent. it?" Yeah. I mean, the one I watched was a, just a giant episode you on the, the military industrial complex and oh. how they treat soldiers. I watched the one. Yeah, that that's I mean, like, dude, look at that deep. He's evolved. Yeah. And he just did a deep dive on it, too. It was so yeah, cool that's to not see anybody move on. He basically took, like, a podcast way of doing it. And I think he realized that, dude, 
people are kind, people like long form, which is this episode. Or there's the people are starved for it because yeah. they don't get it anywhere. I mean, That's like it. you're watching, you like. There's part of me like, okay, normally I'd be like, okay, I'm over this, but I'm like. Oh man, he's going. D- he keeps going on it. That's I'm, cool as shit. I mean, we all know this. this is the reason Rogan hit. Well, who's the first person you hear someone talk for three hours straight about yeah. nothing? Him and Bert did a five-hour podcast. <laughs> yeah, they had to cut <laughs> it into two pieces. Yeah, well, I get that. Yeah, no, but that's yeah, but that's unreal. Imagine where can you hear five hours of anything on TV? Right. So it's like yeah. you know, Andrew Schultz is great. He he kind of had an interesting look at the whole Stephen Colbert thing, and he was like, he's making fun of that. He has to do it. Which I thought was an interesting person. You think he is, though? That seems generous to me. I, it was generous. But I thought it was an interesting take. I think based on Stephen Colbert's past actions... That's it, yeah. ...and past rhetoric, I think yeah. he's a propagandist. Yeah. I heard he's a nice guy, but he's just... He's he's milk. I mean, he's milk toast. You know, it's just Well, boring. he's just bought and sold. He's white bread. You remember you know, when he was cheese. crying because they wanted to get rid of him to put him with the fat British annoying dude? James Corden. Yeah. yeah. Right now, James Corden's the ultimate shill, though. I he mean, is the worst. Pure, is there any way, propaganda. based on your time on this planet, that that guy who looks like that with that energy is a swell guy to hang out oh, with? No, like, no, do you no, think no, no. that guy treats waiters and waitresses and no, busboys no. nice? Fuck no. That no. guy, I've met that guy a thousand times. And he is insanely brutal, right? So today I was driving to a gig, and and we'll get into all the stuff. I was driving into a gig. This girl in her car, I'm pulling up, just pulls out in front of me, drives me off my lane into basically oncoming traffic and waits no... I'm Armenian, bro. (laughs) You don't do that shit to me on the fucking road. I run up, I got, and I hit my brakes, and I stop her for a second. I gave her a fucking look. She starts flipping me off. This tiny little girl starts flipping me off. Part of me is turned on, okay? <laughs> second, second part of me is like, this is where we are in society. That there's no threat of any yeah. ramifications. Especially that, for enough, a certain kind of person. Yeah. That, that, that you can just talk to anybody how you want, regardless of the actions you've taken. Well, she's probably oblivious. She probably had no idea that she just almost killed somebody. And, you know, yeah, and what's crazy is like I don't know if you guys heard, but in Orange County there was a there was like a rage road where some guy pulled out a gun and killed a little baby. Oh like, yeah, that yeah, can yeah. happen. That can happen if yeah. you fucking act stupid. I think that's ridiculous. Dude. Yeah, like there should. I mean, be obviously some, there's like, like that I didn't was pushing get out, it. Get yeah. in her face. I could have done that. Yeah. I could have gotten out and gotten in her face. Like there was some but guy running. Like, Ran over a homeless guy the other week. Uh, just ran him over and just kept going. He didn't even know it. Like, and they, they got video of it, you know? Damn. It's, people are oblivious. Well, I'm surprised it doesn't happen more. People just walk in the middle of the street and act like they fucking... Yeah, but they- this guy, like, ran up on the curb. You know, I, it was just kind of like... Like, the guy was like, just kind of... Or no, the guy was style? crossing in a crosswalk, and they hit him. Uh, that's what There's people who think the crosswalk is a force field of magic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true, too, yeah. Like, dude, yeah. I, every time I uh-huh. cross, I go, I don't know. I, even if I have the right away, I, I'm looking. Well, dude, dude, I'm doing that driving, I too. I told you like, I almost got hit by Kevin Smith one time. Really? No, I didn't know that. Not going. Yeah, he's, he, he had this giant truck coming down the thing, and he just stared at me as I crossed. In he the hills? He just kept going. Yeah, by where I live. That's literally like my death. Like what I'm scared of when I drive in LA is like I'm gonna run someone over and I'm gonna do time for this shit. 
Yeah, because they always just come out out of nowhere, and I'm like, I'm literally, they're gonna look at me and be like, "Well, you texted yeah, 20 minutes I've ago." Had some close calls. Oh yeah, yeah. Because if you're my texting, my phone you're is always on. Yeah. They can say I was on my phone. I just if I do something, I'm just throwing it out the window. <laughs> <laughs> just get I love rid of that, that attitude, <laughs> guys. Uh, I hope you guys are. Uh, we have a great show for you. We have uh, Rick Spence, or as Johnny calls him, <laughs> Richard Spence. <laughs> Uh, it was a great episode as today. Zoom uh, calls him, yeah. Yeah, as Zoom calls him, as he calls himself. It's a great show about secret societies and, and, and regime changes. It's an awesome conversation. Uh, if you love this show, please rate and review. Go say, by the way, the last couple reviews on, uh, t- on Tivoha, amazing. Uh, so go check that out. Guys, if you want more content for us, obviously, you can go to rockfin.com all of our shows all of our all my shows are there every show i got all five or six of them are all there for ten dollars you get two conspiracy social clubs two tim four half premiums two zeros do you, you guys do two conspiracy social clubs a week yeah i didn't know that oh that's great when you get that's a good that deal. show is doing insanely well on Rockfin. it's really funny dude it's I'm, really fun i love that show i, I i'm pretty blown away uh, i i looked at the numbers i'm like oh oh okay Brian Callen is popular. That's For right. Broken Simulation, too, to just be an early thing. Like, the feedback sometimes almost makes me blush. People just are so positive about that show. People love Broken Sim. I know. It's a, and if you want to get more free shows, I have free shows as well. Broken Simulation. Yeah, we got banned from YouTube for a week. For uh, Now, for can nothing. you edit that out? I can't upload anything for a week. Well, we it's like four days from now. Yeah. What, are you going to edit that out and put it back up? Or are we just not putting it out on there? Yeah, I'm going to edit it out and put a space in there. Like, this is where Daddy said we were naughty, you know. Little... It's, it's unbelievable, dude. Yeah. It's the... really unbelievable. Uh, what else? You can actually get uh, early from the vault Conspiracy Social Club shows. Just go to Conspiracy Social Club wherever you listen to it. Broken Sim, uh, Punch Drunk Sports. Uh, dude, Cash Daddies is killing it. I made a ton of cash on uh, Shibu. You guys oh, make Shibu Inu? Shibu Inu? Uh, yeah. I made a ton of cash on it. Hey, crypto's about to hit 60. Uh, I mean, Bitcoin, my bad. Dude, if it gets to 100,000, daddy's dancing. You selling? Daddy's you pulling? Well, the well, I mean, the big well, the big well in LA's pulling? <laughs> eventually, I will have to sell it. I think I think holding on to it is crazy. Where, where were you in on Bitcoin? Where'd you get in? Like the big chunk? What price? Ooh, he wants to know your money. Well, you know how I got it, right? <laughs> well, how, how long ago? Did uh, you get the when big we were chunk? getting paid by BetDSI in Bitcoin. Okay, so you got in at a good, good, good number. So I took it number. and paid you guys out in cash. I gave you the option one time you took it, and then the rest <laughs> time you're like, no, just give me the cash. Yeah, I, 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 I kept mine in Bitcoin though. What you gave but me? But you so. got out Bitcoin, right? You're in the Bitcoin. No, I cash. still, I still have some. I don't want to get totally out in case it goes insane. When it dipped that last time, I got back into it. I, dude, if I, I, if I had the money for four thousand five hundred, I should have bought fucking ton of them, but I didn't. That last dip, you could tell it was going to bounce back from that. And I, I think it's, t- it's always going to. I think personally, it's always going to bounce back. There's this video of this old guy going, "If you lose on Bitcoin, it's going to go down to zero. because he thinks. He thinks people will not invest in Bitcoin because he believes Putin started Bitcoin. 
And I go, it is that a thing? Even I've never even heard that. I've never yeah, heard that yeah. One. He thinks it's uh, from it's KGB. It's Bitcoin. It's like people still buy shit from China. I mean, like, what are you talking? We still get oil yeah. from fucking people who funded 9/11. I mean, I think you are completely <laughs> underestimating. That's a good point. Yeah. You know, <laughs> like you're completely underestimating people's go fuck yourself and make a money fucking attitude, right? Ah, uh, t-shirts. Oh. Conspiracy only T-shirts. That's, That's a great shirt. Yeah. That's hard. You know? Oh no, it's only conspiracy. only conspiracy. Yeah. yeah, that one's there. You call it's funny. You call it fans only too. Sometimes you so know. And, and uh, I got a new one about to drop. Jack your louche, which is gonna be fun. Uh, that's a great way to support the show. Go to tinfoilhattshirts.com. Only go to tinfoilhattshirts.com. Only <laughs> go there. That's it. That Bill Gates okay. shirt with the wrong quote on it just kills me. <laughs> Shut up, dude. <laughs> <laughs> Don't do that. That'd be bad. <laughs> uh, guys, also, I'm going to be live in Miami. Uh, you can get all my dates at samtriplee.com. I'm going to be live in Miami at the Miami Improv. I will be just going to South Beach and staring at hot hood trash, okay? <laughs> what are you going to go? Just sit I, down I just on the park love, bench and, and watch? Yeah, I just love oh. how fucking just it's so it's so fucking hood you're there all three days yeah man but, you really yeah. do love it you're I there do, all three I yeah love, just and then i go here. back yeah. in two weeks after that again people let it hang out down there for sure dude yeah, i mean care, it's like new york versus uh miami dude. go live new york is like sex in the city hot yeah. and then fucking uh then then you got miami which is like fu like you know like, like everybody just came out of a strip club basically uh, you know yeah. you gotta like, go live more often when you're in miami what you got to go live? I do, I do. Us. But like Miami's just all like the the gorilla porn of like you know someone's got a camera. The bang, like everybody's waiting to get picked yeah, up by yeah, bang yeah, bus. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> right. It's the bang bus of porn. Uh, the smoke shows with like big pen tattoos on their faces. Where I'm you all headed, stranger? Oh yeah, oh yeah. They got street hookers, which I think is great. You Good never see street hookers anymore. Yeah. Uh, about the five hundreds, a, pe a couple people have asked me. Uh, we're not gonna have like an official hotel situation, right? I we were trying to make it, but like I'm I I'm sorry, dude. I when we started the idea of the 500, I didn't realize the madness that is going to be Vegas. I mean, Vegas has lost its skull. You mean because of pandemic? Just yeah. everything, like how oh, much okay. it costs. Every I, mean, I hate. So saying if you it. had to recommend like a close by place, do you have anyone? Do you want to know where I'm gonna we're gonna stay? Golden Gate. Okay. The there Golden Gate Casino. That's where I'm staying. Come hang out with me. We're going to hang out. We're going to get on Friday. You already got your reservation, right? Yeah. Okay. Just come make sure before we say well, that. Well, I, I got for all of us. So See? come hang out. That's where we're going. Because I love Fremont Street. Just shady as shit. I like it too. It's right? cheaper. It's How about it's that old guy city? in a diaper that just, you take pictures of some, <laughs> some you, dude hanging out in a diaper? Did you know that the, before they built the Fremont, the Fremont Street experience, it was originally going to be a giant... Gondola. No, no, no. The USS Enterprise, like a full scale replica of the USS Enterprise from Star Trek. It was gonna. That's what was gonna be the free. How, how happy are they that they didn't do that? Because nobody gives a fuck about Star Trek. I don't right know, now. dude. Uh, let me hold on. I'll show you. My the, buddy Marcus Coupling used to do uh, be part of the uh, the Star Trek experience. I I went to that. Yeah. yeah at my the Hill. buddy was yeah. an actor there. Oh no shit. That was that was a good that was a good show. This is what it was gonna be. See this Oh shit right my god. Isn't that Ooh, that is kind of cool that's though? That's fucking awesome, dude. That was that like pretend that's the street right there with yeah. the, the dome on it. Yeah, that's yeah, yeah. Everything. I'm in. I'm all about Wild, that. Right? 
We're all about that action. That'd be dope. It's pretty 20 nice. 20 years ago, they were going to do that. I wonder if the price increase in hotels has to do with uh, the Raiders. Uh, yeah, on weekends, I'm sure. They're like not, that they're playing. Yeah, they're they're not there that yeah. weekend, though. Sad for us, but they're we're not there that weekend. Crazy times, guys. So go check that out. Again, free shows, Broken Sim, Cash Daddies, Conspiracy Social Club, Zero is out. Uh, what else do we got? Uh, we don't smoke the, the same. same. Uh, boom, 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 boom. Any, I mean, just we have wonderful stuff out there. And again, all of our, 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 our premium content is all on Rockfins. We're talking six shows for $10. That's That's... 12 episodes almost. Uh, I mean, I, myself, I'm doing seven episodes uh, myself a week. So go check it out. Uh, this is a great podcast. Thanks, I man. thoroughly enjoyed it. I want to do a whole show just on the Russian Revolution because I do think there is shady-ass shit involved. So um, We've had a good couple of weeks of shows. You know, Mark is doing a great job, even yeah. though he drives me fucking nuts sometimes. <laughs> he's great. No, he's done a great job. He's done a great job. Good job, Mark. Good job, Mark. All right, guys. Thank you so much. Enjoy the show. Go deep, homeboy. Open your mind. Drink from the fountain of Guys, I want to talk to you about our good friends and long-running sponsors of Tim Fall Hat. Blue Chew. That's right. It's fall. Fall is here, and that means you're going to be inside, and that means bonerific. That's right. There's going to be a lot of time for a lot of boners, and you're going to need help with that, guys, and that's where Blue Chew comes in, right? Blue Chew. Man, I love Blue Chew. Blue Chew is a unique online service that delivers the same active ingredients as Viagra and Cialis, but in a chewable tablet, and it takes it's at a fraction of the cost, right? I love it. I love Blue Chew. I take it and I look the girl in the eye. I go, prepare for war. That's what I do with my lady. And let's say you're like you're like Xavier. You go both ways. Sometimes you look the guy in the eye and go, it's on like Szechuan. We don't judge here. I don't I don't go on the road unless I take a Blue Chew with me. You can fly with it. I mean, it's always with me. You can fly with Blue Chew. How great is that? You can fly with Blue Chew, okay? The process is very simple to get Blue Chew. Sign up at BlueChew.com dot com consult with one of our licensed medical providers and once you're approved you'll receive your pr prescription within days the best part it's all done online man all online so no visits to the doctor's office no awkward conversations and no waiting in line at the pharmacies you ever wait in line with a chick she's like what you're here for you're like oh dude i need boner pills not anymore bro not anymore right you could walk your dog wave your neighbor with the big tits and be like Tomorrow's the day Action Jackson happens all because of our good friends at Blue Chew. It's really simple, dude. I love Blue Chew. You all love Blue Chew. So here's what we need you to do. We need we got a special deal for our, uh, our listeners for the swarm. Okay. Try Blue Chew free when you use the promo code TINFOIL at checkout. Just pay $5 shipping. That's it. What do you get for five bucks? Okay. Bluechew.com promo code TINFOIL to receive your important safety information and we thank blue chew for sponsoring the podcast that's right let's go to bluechew.com promo code tinfoil to receive your first month free visit bluechew.com for more details let's get into it man super excited to have this guest on he is an author he wrote a book called secret agent 666 please welcome rick spence for our listeners the swarm who may not be familiar with you and your work. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? 
Okay, I'm a recently retired professor of history at the University of Idaho in glorious Moscow, Idaho, hey. northern skinny part of the state. Um, and my interest over the years of, you know, I started out just pretty much as a normal historian and my interest for an Eastern year, basically in, in where everything begins is my unhealthy interest in modern Russian history. So, of course, when you get into modern Russian history, you get into the Russian Revolution, which everything tends to revolve, everything's leading up to the revolution and everything flows out of the revolution. So one of the things that happens if you deal with one Russia and you deal with the Russian Revolution is you end up with, well, you know, it's all pretty conspiratorial, isn't it? Yeah. Because the one thing that you cannot have is a revolution without a conspiracy. Because if you try that, if you try to overthrow the government and you're not keeping things under wraps, you'll be hanging from a lamppost in very short order or put up against the wall and shot. So revolutionary activity requires conspiracy in order to have any chance of functioning. And I guess one of the things that I need to explain here, since that word conspiracy gets thrown around all the time, conspiracy this, conspiracy that, is to explain what I mean by a conspiracy. So here's Spence's definition of a conspiracy. This isn't necessarily anybody else's, but it's mine. It's two or more people working together in secret to attain a common end. That's all it is. Now, that's that's really sort of taken from the definition of criminal conspiracy, but that involves two or more people working to achieve an unlawful end. But I don't even say it has to be unlawful. Conspiracies don't have to be about achieving anything which is unlawful or immoral or unethical. They usually are, but they don't have to be. It's just two or more people working together in secret. That's the, the nobody else is in on this to achieve a common end. Now. Once you kind of digest that basic definition and you begin to look around, you can see that that pretty much is everything. Yes, 100%. <laughs> it, it, it covers the broad range of, of human activity. So there are sort of <laughs> low-level conspiracies, medium-level and higher-level ones, but it, it's one of those things that human beings engage in all the time. I mean, you know, if you've ever been in a situation where, I don't know, maybe you and some friends were going to do something, but, you know, if you weren't sure you wanted to include, I don't know, Bob. Yeah. And, and so it's like, well, let's go ahead and do this, but let's not tell Bob. Well, you're conspiring against Bob. Bob isn't necessarily aware of it. He doesn't know that this is happening, but but that's what you're doing. That's a that's a very you know low end of the speed spectrum right. conspiracy. But the thing is, is very very common. So the, the, one of the things you often get, particularly when people tatter on conspiracy theories, is that well, conspiracies are only things that are imaginary, and people never do this. No, no, no. People do it all the time. All it's the just time. The way, just the way that that people operate, and. And particularly when you get into the realm of things like high-level economics, business, politics, all right? You can't really have politics without essentially some kind of, of that sort of operation going forth. So that that's, was kind of my gateway drug, I guess, the Russian Revolution and the conspiracies connected to it. I think the Russian Revolution is a humongous uh, part of human history i mean a, a humongous part and i i really want to get into that but i want to ask you so 
you know, this is a conspiracy show. We, we're we not afraid of that term. We actually embrace it. That is the name of the show. It's called Tim Fall Hat. was done purposefully to own that, that, that term so that, you know, uh, because I always felt like when you allow uh, people to have a name that you just want to get rid of so badly <laughs> that you like kind of you, you empower it. So you don't really own it, but you empower it. So we kind of wanted to own uh, the, the the phrase tinfoil hat or the description tinfoil hat. But something I've learned on the show is like, you know, people, you know, in my life, people who don't listen to the show, people, family members, particularly ones who have vaginas, okay? Um, <laughs> they tend to go to me, oh, is everything a conspiracy? And to that I say... In my honest opinion, yeah, there is yeah. a lot. I mean, is everything a conspiracy? Well, I mean, I ordered a chicken kebab for lunch. I got the chicken kebab. There's no conspiring there. I ordered out and open. But, you know, news, politics, business, I mean, there is I mean, so when you're much. a kid, when you're a kid, Santa Claus. 100%. For a conspiracy. Everyone's in on it. You're a little kid and you know you're not supposed to know that who yeah, Santa Claus for is. For sure. For sure. And that's for like sure. the number one, and we all fall for Everyone's in on it. That's the crazy part. Everyone, the TV's on it. Here's some guy that brings you this, and he does it. Yeah. Well, here's the, here's the other thing you can add to the, the tendency of people to conspire, to engage in the kind of activity I described. They lie, right? It's, <laughs> I mean, it's just one of the things, you know, we, we all do it on occasion, usually when it serves our interest better than the truth <laughs> does, which is fairly often. But on the other hand, people just lie sometimes for no particular reason. Those are the ones that are always kind of bewildering in some ways. That I, I you know, but why are they lying? You yeah. have people who just make stuff up. <laughs> yeah, 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 um, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, for either to get attention or something else. But but that's that's the commonplace. And and Santa Claus is a good example of that because here's this whole sort of societal conspiracy against children. <laughs> what you're going to do? What you're going to do is you're, who you who you protest to love so much. But what you're going to do is you're going to vicariously terrorize them. With, with this being who can punish them or withhold presence from them. Uh, and that somehow it won't be your fault, you know, as, as the parent. It will be because, well, they were bad and, and Santa put you on his list. Uh, yeah, and, which is blackmail. Yeah. <laughs> it so, truly, Santa involves blackmail of if you act bad, you're going to be punished. So don't act bad. Do what we tell you to do. And you will receive the promises. He can right. see so when you're not button. looking. He can see when you're not looking. Yeah, I like yeah. that. We're always watching. Yep. It, it, it's out of our hands because Santa is a magical being, right? He's, <laughs> he's more powerful than we are. There's nothing we can do about it. Uh, you know, in 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 areas in Europe, particularly in, like in the Netherlands and Germany, they, they're, the Santa Claus there is a little, well, darker. Um, he has this little evil companion who comes along with him called Black Pete. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. And, and, and one of the things, you know, there, the, the traditional, you know, if you were a bad kid, you just didn't get coal in your stocking or no presents. You were stuffed in a bag and carried off and sold to the Turks. <laughs> oh, my God. That, that's, what could, that's what could happen to you. If you're really bad, you could just disappear from the face of the earth. <laughs> yeah, it so, sounds like politics. <laughs> yeah, it's, so it's a... Uh, um, yeah, I, I remember being at a, a uh, this was actually with my, my in-laws, which were wonderful people, but some <laughs> years back, and 
one of them had a small daughter and I don't know what it was, but you know, I think the eggnog had been going around. I probably had had more to drink of that than I should have. <laughs> and, and the little girl said something about, Oh, well, Santa's going to bring me this and Santa's going to bring me that. And Santa, and, and then she asked me what I thought about Santa. And I said, well, there is no Santa. Oh my oh. God. No, I said, Santa doesn't exist. She goes, yes, there is. My mommy told myself. Oh. Told me so. and, and for some reason, I know I shouldn't have done this, but I did. I said, well, your mommy's lying. Oh, <laughs> my God. And, He's going and, hard. You know, you're, you're not. And, and some years from now, you're going to realize that I'm the one that's telling you the truth. <laughs> and your mother was the one that was lying to you. And I want you to remember that when that day comes. That didn't go over well. Her oh. mother overheard that. <laughs> and, I, and, I, and, I, and I had to apologize. But see, this is a case of what it was that I was telling her was absolutely true. I was the only adult in the room who would be honest with her. And I was the bad guy. So there you go. No, I totally agree with you. I was traumatized when uh, Mrs. Lavoie told me that Santa wasn't real. That was very traumatizing to me. (laughs) But what I will tell you is that what you're saying right now is playing out in real time with adults, which is people prefer comfortable lives, comforting lives to unsettling truths. We're bad guys. We're bad guys on YouTube. Get rid of the bad guys. Yeah. Um, They're telling the truth. Get rid of the bad guys. And well, what we're also seeing is this, this kind of mental gymnastics that comes with having a set rule that you have pushed for decades and then totally being fine with throwing that rule out when it doesn't fit what you believe anymore right well that that's you know that maybe is the third point in it is that we're always taught that there are rules you know things work by rules we have to obey the rules and then and it's you know it's a little bit like uh you know i, I think the, the, this, one of the places you can see this is the military there's the way things are supposed to work and then there are the things the way they really work Right. They're all the different ways. Because as soon as you create rules, as soon as you establish something, as soon as you put up some sort of a wall, people are going to try to find ways to get over it or under it or around it. They're going to, it, when you, as one person put it, a wiser man than me, once you create a system of any kind, then it is a natural human tendency to game that system, to figure out how you can manipulate it in some respects. And so there are rules, but yeah, rules only stand for as long as they're useful. And then they're, then, then we have special situations. See, that's why we have martial law. <laughs> so that's, there's, there's, that's, see, that's always in the background because, well, there's a constitution and there are rights, except when there's martial law. So if there's something really goes, if something really gets serious, then all it of these gets, silly gets things. It gets all thrown we, out. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, because apparently those are just kind of temporary. Yeah, I so, totally agree with that. I 100%. I mean, there was an old saying at the world famous comedy store. I, you know, I used to go up there all the time. I, I haven't gone there be- lately because I'm just not into th- certain things that they are they're doing at the time. I love them, support them, and love the place. Uh, you know, but they used to say the rules at the comedy store were written in number two pencil. <laughs> and they, that means they were easily erased. And, and, rewrote. and it is interesting, man. I say this all, you know, you have everybody arguing about uh, economic systems, capitalism, socialism, communism, right? And everybody has their arguments. Uh, and then there's also anarchy is in there as well. 
and you have everybody debating all these things. But I, I, my whole opinion is no matter what system you use, it is corruptible. It is all corruptible <clears throat> by power and influence and money. So, and that there's always going to be a group of really smart people and really wealthy people and really powerful people that can game the system. It does not matter what it is. And you could say, well, we'll you know, if you're an anarchist, you'd be like, well, we're going to, we're going to put our foot down and we're going to, dude, uh, that's been said a thousand times. And when push came to shove, everybody ran or nobody did anything. You see it happen all the Time and I, I think that's kind of a great example of what happened with you know the Russian Civil War. Is that, uh, in my humble opinion, and you correct me if I'm wrong, there were outside influences that came in and completely uh corrupted the, the system within uh Russia. And Russia was, you know, I, I think Russia was way more powerful than we are led to believe in modern U.S. history, what it represented in terms of globally, what the, the Russian royalty and you know, hierarchy, what, what they were and who they did and how they operated was much more influential and powerful than I think a lot of people would want to believe in that outside influences came in. We somewhat see that in action today here in the United States. Uh, came in and just... Uh, this, in my humble opinion, I'd love to hear your, your opinion, Rick, uh, destroyed it through the inside. Well, you know, funny thing, I actually wrote another book pretty much on that theme. Um, in fact, my book that came out most recently was Wall Street and the Russian Revolution. And some people may say, that, that title sounds similar to a book by Anthony Sutton called Wall Street and the Bolshevik Revolution. And that's because it was his book that inspired me to write this one. And, um, Without going too much into ancient history, Anthony Sutton was an American researcher back in the 1960s and 1970s who first really sort of could see that there were these kind of interesting connections between American financial interests and, by the way, German and British and even French financial interests and, and political interests in and around the Russian Revolution. He didn't have a lot of material to work with because there wasn't a lot of archival sources or other things that have opened up since. And so what I did in my book was to look specifically, you know, concentrate really upon American connections to the Russian Revolution. And it really comes down to uh, treating political. Today, we talk about a thing called regime change. Heard that term around? Yeah. We're, we're going to have regi we're going to have regime change, which means often, if you look at it, it involves going in, forming organizations, usually NGOs, working through those, through that to foment protests. One of the next stages you see is that there are mass protests in the capital city that places stress on the government and then this is the way regimes are brought down if you look in the last 20 years you can see that sort of playbook happening again and again and again and that's not really accidental and it's not spontaneous and yes it does involve conspiracy and we call it regime change but that sort of thing has been going on much longer than the term existed so uh the, the whole russian phenomenon of the early 20th century is complicated but yeah, go back to something you said. If you looked at Tsarist Russia in the early 20th century, in the two decades or so building up to the revolution, 
The general portrait we get of it was that Russia was a horrible country. It was thoroughly impoverished. The czar was an evil man. His regime was corrupt and, and oppressive. And that's, you know, true to a certain extent. It, it was very backward in a number of ways. A lot of the people in the country were very poor. They were in most places. All right. This is this is one of the things you've got to keep in mind is that most people who ever lived anywhere at any time in history have been poor. Yes. Right. I get that. I, you know, yeah. And they say that like, oh, people are dying. I go, you know, when we're talking about what's going on here in America, mm-hmm. I go, when was the time that nobody was dying? <laughs> when did nobody <laughs> die? What, what was that period? What were they doing then? It did exist. You know, I mean, I wish that wasn't so, you know, since you know, as you get older, you become more conscious of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. Never, it's, it's all part of the circle of life, right? People are born, they live for a time and they die. And uh, the same thing tends to happen with regimes. But actually, if, if you look at Russia in that period, it was it was really on the verge of this kind of economic breakout. Because remember, you've got yeah the biggest land state on earth still is. It's got every kind of natural resource you could possibly imagine. And the problem, simply often because of the size of the place, was exploiting those resources. And the, the Russian Russia was making really significant strides. And one of the things that the revolution and the civil war and all the chaos did was to set that back. It, it sort of derailed the whole course of the country. And much of that really just comes down to the very simple thing of a competition for resources. And there was a feeling in places like London and even in some places like New York and in Berlin that uh, Russia, this backward regime, really just had too many of the world's resources and we should really, we should have them. We should be able to control them in one way or the other. And there are two ways to do that. One is that you invade and conquer the place and then you have all the problems of having to administer it and control the population, you know, and God knows feed them. Or... You carry out regime change and you install a regime that will do all the dirty work for you and you simply reap the profits. Yeah. All right. If you want to, if you want to see a place where that type of thing goes on today, look at Africa. Look at the Congo. Okay. Hey, everybody. I want to tell you about our friends at Urbanisa. Okay. Urbanisa was born in 2010 in Stockholm, Sweden, out of a love for cities and urban life. Okay. Drawing inspiration from the world's greatest cities and rooted in Scandinavian design traditions. Their products are sleek, stylish, and sound great. Okay. And I can tell you, I love them. I uh, here, I'm going to give you a personal endorsement. I love these things. Okay. Johnny, give a personal endorsement, please. I love them. Yeah, they fit really well. The sound quality is amazing. And Xavier, I, I can you can you give us one too? I mean, these are top notch. These are top notch. Okay, until you discover. Listen, man. Here's the whole thing. With most audio products out there, there's always a compromise, either on sound, look, or the price just won't be right. Okay, not with Urbanista. That's right. There's stylish range of audio products that get the sound right, the look right, and the fit and the feel just right okay they're colorful assortments of lifestyle audio products including active noise cancellation headphones true wireless head earphones okay and wireless connective speakers okay do not compromise on either sound or quality do not compromise all right don't do it 
All right, design for life emotions. 365 day warranty on all products. Urbanista has a free and easy 90 day return policy. So if you're you're not happy with them, guess what? You can return them. No questions asked. Okay. So right now, okay, Urbanese has got a great special offer for the swarm. That's right. Tinfoil hat for life, Urbanista. This is all you got to do. Just go to urbanista.com slash tinfoil to get 20% off your entire order. That's 20% off everything. You can get free shipping for all orders over $60, man. Just go to urbanista.com dot com slash tinfoil for 20% off. That's U-R-B-A-N-I-S-T-A dot com slash tinfoil. Get the headphones, rock out. Okay, if you, if you look in the 1990s, the, the Congo, a tremendously wealthy country, it is mired in poverty and war and disease. And and that is because of different groups in the country fighting against each other, but also of outside interests coming in, fueling this war and these factional disputes, with all with the aim of installing a regime that will then give them the rights to, you know, mine lithium for cell phone batteries. So that's what that whole war was about, batteries for cell phones. And, and the whole theory is, is like, why have to, why have to pay an entire country when you could just pay one, one person, which is the dictator, right. you and in, you insert the dictator. And ultimately what happens either that dictator starts to get too big, big for his britches. He starts believing his own hype, thinking he can make calls, uh, or you just need another war. So you just figure out a way to get rid of him and put somebody else in that will do your gig. You see it happen over and over and over and over again in the Middle East. I mean, they Gaddafi, just take yeah. out moderate guys and put in crazier people. Then when the people get tired of him, they, they take him out and they put another guy in. That's all going to do their job, but they never ever have to, you know, buy, you know, pay off the entire country. It's pay off the, the strong man who controls everything, allows you to get your profits. And then the bad guy becomes a good guy. Is Taliban's that where the good. term banana republic comes from, basically? That in turn, like you become, isn't that for like Asians? No, that's not for Asians. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. He's new to this country. Um, it, it's basically, I forget what country it was, but basically... They wanted to control the banana trade, I believe. Oh, it was, it was the United, it was Central America. It was Nicaragua, Guatemala, and um, the the big American interest there in the early 20th century was the United Fruit Company. And the United Fruit Company, of course, wanted to have cooperative governments who would let them, you know, grow as many bananas or as much coffee as they wanted to and not tax them. And when politics got in the way of that um the united fruit company got the u.s government to send in the marines so if you tend to go back and look at uh you know the u.s was you know spent 30 years in nicaragua um essentially enforcing political order largely for the benefit of the united fruit company and other american contractors and installing one sort of strong man after the other you know you install this guy uh you send in some military advisors you sell him lots of weapons make sure the country stays in debt and, and he keeps his population in line and you get your bananas yeah <laughs> yeah and that's how it goes and you know i, I think that's a big thing about what happened to Russia. It's just like there were certain outside influences that didn't like the power and the fact that, 
you know, Russian bloodlines, I think, are very important people. The Russian monarchy, very important people. And they wanted to get them out and install their own people that would basically, you know, I, I'm sorry, but keep keep the keep the the population poor and allow the leaders to reap all the rewards i mean i want to get into this on another podcast but these uh pandora papers right i mean like dude dude putin's mistress has a hundred million dollars so it's like what does putin have gotta be a trillion right he's the richest man in the world and look how poor look how poor Russians are. Well, they're not as poor as they used to be. I mean, they're, they're really, but in, in terms of the, but I mean, it, it's not just Russians. I mean, you right. think that Putin and his mistress are the only ones that have a lot of money stashed offshore? No, 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 uh, no, no not I at would all. bet, I would have bet that if you wanted to, you know, shock Americans to the extent that they can actually be shocked anymore about anything, uh, I don't know how many of, of our of our leaders, you know, either political or all of our influencers, which is a fancy word for propagandist, isn't it? Yeah, for right. sure, dude. Okay. I know somebody who's probably like, I'm, 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 I'm a YouTube influencer. <laughs> go, well, you know, you're, you're just a shill for somebody. That's all you're <laughs> yeah. doing. You're selling something. If you're not selling yourself, you're selling something else out there. But you see how unpleasant I can be? This is why I'm not good at parties. Dude, you're right? in the right place for that because we're all about that action, <laughs> dude. And, you know, it's very interesting yeah. because, uh, you you know, uh, a video just went out about what they call the dead internet. And I want to do an episode on the dead internet, yeah. which is the notion that up to 60, 61% of the profiles on the internet are fake. And that there is this thing where, like, based on what the powers that be, and, you know, Facebook, Google, these all have U.S. intelligence agency fingerprints and funding all all around us okay so you got you got youtube which is google facebook all have like all have intelligence funding behind it and you know this push to make prop certain people up and and kneecap other people so you shadow ban some people and we've seen it with this show completely shadow banned and then we see some people that you'll see some people like their tweets make no sense, and they get a bazillion likes. You're like, why is that person got a bazillion likes? But when they go do a show, they can't sell a ticket, yep. right? So it's like because there's no real people following them because they're getting propped up, and we can get in cultural Marxism, if that's a different discussion. But that's kind of what's going on, and I think that's kind of what happened in Russia. Well, you know what blew my mind? Not even that, how most links don't even aren't even real. You, like you click the link and it doesn't send you anywhere. Really? That's what it said. It said that like 70% of like links, like even like government links, you click on the link and it sends you nowhere. You never clicked on a link and it says this thing doesn't exist. No, I've never clicked on that, but I've seen it take me where it won't upload or anything yeah, that, like yeah. that. Stuff like that. Because they know most people won't read the article. Yeah. They'll it's, just read the title and they'll be like, did you hear that? Yeah, that, it, that same, that, bombs that same video you sent me, was, it was talking about that because yeah. I sent you the part two. But that's exactly what, yeah. what we're talking about here. Influencers and propagandists and, you know, like who they want to push and what they do and it's like what whoever it is whether it's the ccp or you know this this red scare like craziness that was going on in the in the, you know u.s media or whoever it is man. It's, it's so easy to hide too because they don't even have to 
program these people or tell them what to say. They just let the people who are saying what they want to be said and they rise promote to the top. Them. Yeah, promote them, right, exactly. Like when that trans woman's like, we should give puberty blockers to children until they're old enough to figure out what gender they want to be. You're like, nobody thinks that. Just Yahoo, which is a dead brand that has name <laughs> recognition, has the, is being used to put out information. And then when people destroy Yahoo, no real brand takes a hit. Apple doesn't take a hit because Apple's making money. Yahoo doesn't make money, but the name <laughs> registers. <laughs> Yahoo or whatever. You too, really. You, I, when's uh, the last time you had a Yahoo? Right, that's I mean. true. Hey, that's true. What do you think with the Facebook going down? Do you think that had anything to do? I mean, they lost money, technically. With fa oh, you, you, Facebook. You're asking me what I think about Facebook going down? Yeah. yeah. Uh, I think that the timing with the whistleblowers was mm -hmm. suspicious. I mean, you've, you've now got someone who's going on raising complaints about it, and then suddenly the whole thing goes down. And now, I could be entirely wrong and say I'm engaged in way too much sort of conspiratorial thinking, but the first thing that came to mind is that, well, they're turning off the lights to delete files, okay? They're getting rid of something, and then they can claim that we were hacked. That's what they did claim. There no, no. The claim was that the security was so tight in there that they couldn't even get into their own servers. No, no, no. That is that the employees couldn't even yeah, get into the work and yeah. stuff. But there was a story going around that some Chinese company it's was hacking us. Right. It's always they're the, the perfect fault. I mean, let's sort of you know go back and put together three things we talked about. Okay, one is the tendency of people to engage in conspiratorial behavior, two or more people working a secret to attain a common end, right? That's something that people just do all the time. Two, the tendency of human beings to lie, either to lie strategically or simply to lie pathologically. And then third, the idea that any system that can be created can be, can be gamed or worked. So when you put those together, conspiratorial thinking, the tendency to lie, the obsessive desire to game anything, and then that—that—that's the way the world works. And then the problem becomes, what's real? <laughs> what? And and then you find out that I mean, this is the thing you got to ask yourself: how much of what we tend to take for granted about reality, about the world, is Santa Claus? <laughs> I totally agree with that, man. I totally agree with that there was a video of a guy in new york city working at a cash register with literally a hazmat suit on and you're like FBC. in that guy's world he's in the middle of a black plague yeah that could take anyone around him even though they're laying off healthcare workers left and right you know and it's just it's it's so true like but that helps their narrative in their eyes that helps well, their mean, like, narrative when, when, when the cia got busted for spending 600 million dollars on a to basically giving 600 million dollars to a british pr company to make isis beheading videos yeah and you're like that was put up because they wanted to scare everybody that isis was scary right then we go to the Chinese virus, right? You remember the videos coming out? People just falling on the streets. Everyone's like, oh, my God. Wow. You could just fall dead on the streets. That sets up hysteria. I mean, what, what, what scared me was people were getting all crazy about Instagram not working, their Facebook. Imagine if Google went down. 
Well, I would. Well, because like, your emails. Yeah, emails, huh, Johnny? Imagine if Google went down. Well, if it's what happened, happened briefly a few times. I would when, gladly yeah. sacrifice my emails for Google to go down. We've lost it. We've lost Google for uh, briefly for uh, I think Gmail it for a while. The other day. Yeah, yeah. I think it happened the other day. So, I mean, there's a lot of stuff to get into. I could listen to you talk about the Russian uh, revolution forever. Well, but uh, I think you had a question about. Um, what were some of these my, mysteries? My, my sort of sort of unsolved historical mysteries. Yes, I, mean, I love that. I've been wanting to do mysteries okay. on this show. I would love to hear some more. What What are some of these mysteries that you some of your favorites that haven't been solved? Well, here's one that here's one that interests me because it keeps it's, it's one of these things I've never been able to really get a handle on. And, and and in some cases, you know, going back to what we were talking about a few minutes ago, what's real and what's Santa Claus? And, and the same thing is true in history. Because history is basically this received wisdom or story. It's all about a narrative. History is all about the narrative, which is just a, a fancy word for story. So there is a story about Napoleon. There's a story about World War. And there's a story about everything. And it's essentially... True, you know, there, there was, let's put it this way, we, we can't argue that there wasn't a First World War, all right? There was a lot of shooting and people died and the Russian Revolution happened. But when you try to get into the details of exactly why did it happen and why did it take this particular course and, and what the results of it were, well, then you basically get into opinion. So one of the things, because I'm, I'm interested in, let's say, this kind of underside of, of history, one of the things that some other researchers and I would occasionally come across, we, we'd look at something, you know, again, you could look at something like the, the, the outside influences of the Russian Revolution or in other activities. And usually what you're looking at are different governments. You know, you're talking about what the British are doing or what the Germans are doing or what the French are doing, because it's assumed that there are governmental actors. You know, what, what in, uh, I think in political science jargon are called state actors that the whole stage of world events are created by state actors. But but what we get the sense of every now and then is that there was some kind of actors involved in these process, in this process that, that weren't necessarily working for any government in particular. And this is where I would run across these occasional references they would come up in literature they'd come up in a couple of guys you know dubious characters memoirs you know people you can't really tell whether they're making it up or they're telling the truth but you would begin to to bring together these little bits and pieces and what they what they talked about was something that was usually called the international secret service bureau there seemed to have been other names i don't know if that was its real well that, that there was something called that, but it may have operated under other names, but here's what it was. It was headquartered prior to the First World War in Brussels, Belgium. Now, why Brussels? Why Belgium? Well, basically it seems because Belgium, because it was internationally a neutral country, was the only country in the world where there were no laws against espionage. <laughs> I mean, I mean, remember, if, if you're supposed to be neutral, then you can't have any objections to people spying. So Brussels, who knew it, became the kind of spy capital of Europe. And what this International Secret Service Bureau is claimed to be was a private intelligence agency, which would then be contracted by governments in order to do things that those governments didn't want to do themselves. 
Oh my God. So you've got some kind of dirty work you want to do, but you don't want to have the British government's fingerprints on this anywhere. So you pay through third parties, this group of people who, and then it was apparently staffed by people who had been part of the Russian, German, and other secret services. You can never get an idea of who. You know, spies who went private. And now if you think about it, it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, it eventually, I mean, it's, it's essentially what you're talking about are espionage mercenaries. And, you know, mercenaries is sometimes said is the second oldest profession. You know, basically, you learn how to kill people, and then you realize that other people will pay you to do that, and therefore you have one of the one of the ongoing <laughs> professions throughout history. Well, if you have skills, if you have experience, if you have you know, if you're marketable in terms of what you can do, and you also can do things that other people probably wouldn't want to do or not even know how to do, but might be you know, morally squishy about doing it. Well, there's someone who will pay you to do that. So on the one hand, I can't believe that at some point a group of retired or let's just say simply uh, greedy spies didn't realize they could make a lot more money in private work than they could as a you know, government employee. And this agency is set up. There, there are a few little sort of official references to it, but you can't get a handle on who the people were behind it. You can rarely get an idea as exactly what they did. Now, you got to think about it. This was a type of thing that you're going to do work that other governments don't want to be connected to. So, well, that could be the theft of code books or you know, economic espionage. But I know the one thing that first comes to mind, murder. Assassination. Assassination. All right. So assassinations or think of this way, regime change. You know, you hire people. In and there, there's a particular incident, and in, in it's recounted in a couple of, again of dubious books that came out in the in the 1930s, and they, they were written by you know they, they kind of tell-all memoirs of people who mostly seem to be international con men, but nevertheless were in some of the places they describe. You don't know how much what they say you can believe, but here is the story. Uh, and the story actually related to uh, during the, the, the Russian Civil War we were talking about and the outside interest. One of the things that happened around 1919 was that the French, the French army actually came in and occupied Odessa, which was a major port. But now Ukraine was in the Russian Empire and other areas. So there was a French military intervention. And in the course of this, the, the fellow who was the commander of the French forces in Odessa was approached by a woman. Uh, well-dressed, you know, apparently beautiful, but aren't they all? And she said, I'm, I'm the representative of this international, this sort of private espionage organization. And um, I'm here to tell you that, that we sort of helped put the Bolsheviks into power, and we'd be perfectly happy if you were to pay us to remove them from power. And you should carry back to your uh, bosses in, in Paris the idea that if I and my organization are paid a sufficient amount of money, I don't know, with some god-awful amount, it's not that much in francs, but, you know, 100 million francs, let's say, we can see to it that the Soviet government will fall, which will save you a lot of money besides. And if you don't, on the other hand, I can guarantee you that that won't happen. Well, the guy didn't think very much of her proposal and apparently didn't even forward it back to Paris, and the rest, they say, is, is history. So... 
it's one of those things that's it's like a you know it's like a scene out of a bond movie all right and whether or not that actually occurred i'm not i have a certain idea as to who that woman was in fact i'm pretty sure who she was who do you think uh, she was uh, a woman by the name of Nada Rogerski, and originally her name was Nada Azef. And she was the sister of a fellow, you know, it gets into the whole sort of family relationship, but she was the sister of a man who had been a an agent provocateur, a, a kind of deep cover agent for the Russian secret police inside, the Tsarist secret police inside the revolutionary movements. He'd actually headed a terrorist organization. Jesus. So, I mean, this, this shows you the type of thing that was going on. The Tsar's secret police, a thing called the Okrana, which is really what the KGB and everything else descended upon, its job was to combat revolutionary subversion. You know, the Okrana's job was to go out, ostensibly, and to destroy political threats to the regime. And they were actually fairly good at that because what they did was that they – they corrupted or infiltrated people inside those movements. Yes. And they then began to put their own people at the heads of these movements. Yes. So there was a particular revolution. It wasn't the Bolsheviks, although they had people inside that. But the, actually, the biggest revolutionary party in Russia wasn't the Bolsheviks. They weren't much of anything up to 1917. But it was a thing called the Party of Socialist Revolutionaries. There you go. The PSR or the SRs. And the SRs believed in terrorism. Okay, they they believed that by assassinating Tsarist government officials, they could bring the regime down. So they organized a terrorist unit, a whole separate unit that carried out assassinations. The guy who headed that was a fellow by the name of Yevno Azef, and he was an agent of the secret police. And by the way, his second in command was also an agent of the secret police, and neither one of them knew that. Oh, my God. So but this, this is the way the Okrana would work. They would, they would infiltrate. The term for this is multiple penetration, which sounds like <laughs> But anyway, glory hole. You, 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 you never put just one agent inside that. Right, 100%. Yeah. I mean, we see yes, that yes. in now we're yeah. like FBI arrest FBI at like events, right. and you're like, dude, I was undercover. Like, how was I supposed to know? And they just do it all. I mean, like, if you take a look at like uh, here in America, I mean, like, Jesse Jackson's tied to the FBI. Al Sharpton's tied to the FBI. Gloria uh, from the feminist. Gloria Stein, Gloria Stein, FBI. I mean, you see that happen all the time. The insertion of controlled opposition into opposition movements. Right. And, and you never, and you may, you know, let's say you can have a central the committee meeting of some revolutionary group and there are 12 people there and half of them are FBI agents. But, <laughs> oh. they, but none of them should know that. January 6th? No, Well, no, more and like the Michigan none of, none, of, none of them, sh I mean, that was actually, if you look at the American Communist Party, what remained of it in the 1950s, I think there actually was some sort of central committee meeting of the, of the American Communist Party where somebody figured out that half the people there were FBI informants. <laughs> I mean, great. there was nothing. Like, nobody could go to the bathroom in the Communist Party <laughs> that, that the FBI didn't know about. <laughs> And but you 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 keep them all separate. No one is supposed to know the other guy's an agent because that way they inform on each other. 
So, for instance, let's say you've got three agents infiltrated into this revolutionary group, and they should all be reporting back pretty much the same thing, right? Their stories should just – now, if two of them are saying one thing and one isn't, well, then there's a discrepancy, and you need to figure out what that is. Uh, And if you find out that one of those three people isn't being honest with you because you can compare their statements to the others, well, you can just get rid of them and infiltrate somebody else. And you you get rid of them simply by blowing their cover. You arrange to have their work for you revealed, whereupon their revolutionary comrades will generally get rid of them for you. Damn, dude, that is 100%. I mean, like in the conspiracy community on the Internet, they always say the left is eating itself alive. We always talk about... How who is controlled op? Who is not? Uh, if you don't talk about this, you're a controlled op, and it's just like you know, it's just like nobody knows who's coming or going. On this show, I think it's Xavier Guerrero. <laughs> well, I think it sounds like North Korea. How you you can't snitch on anyone. Everyone's just snitches on each other. It's so well, tight. That it's is a, so tight where it's like that is a big part of social credit score. Is the one hundred percent. Snitching on each other, but I mean, if you go back to the supposed almost attempt to kidnap the governor, the governor of Michigan, I, like, dude, thirteen, like, of the thirteen of the fourteen people who did, or no, it was twelve out of the fifteen were FBI informants, and three of them were homeless. Yeah, it just like doesn't even make any sense, man. You see it happen all the time to the point where you wonder, like, how many of these high impact events aren't involved with some MK Ultra oh. FBI oh. handlers? They did that with the terrorists. How they used to make them act like, oh, here's the bomb. Now act like you're going to commit suicide. I'm like, you gave me the bomb. Like, yeah, it's yeah, not like. Yeah. I mean, obviously they're bad people, but that it's like you're setting them a up a lot. Yeah. Oh, I mean, we can go through all the connections. To so many of these high impact events that have FBI connections. Yeah. I mean, they want to be able to arrest people for thought crime, but they haven't worked that out yet. So this and is just closed. It yeah. out, and they're dude. working Give on it. Time. Yeah. Give them time. But anyway, the whole point of this is this goes back a long ways. Okay. So if you thought you know the FBI didn't invent it, the CIA didn't invent it, the KGB didn't invent it. Uh, I, I'm not even sure whether the, the Zaras Okrana invented it, but they certainly perfected it to a degree. But but what happened in this, and see, this is one of, this is another one of these kind of mysteries leading up to the Russian Revolution, is that the Okrana was very good at its job. It had so thoroughly penetrated the revolutionary groups that there was nothing that they that they could plot that the secret police didn't know about. Their people were in positions of either leadership or influence. To a great extent, they controlled the revolutionaries. They could manipulate them. But notice that the one thing they never do is they never destroy them. There's a very simple reason for that. If your agency's reason to exist is to combat revolutionary conspiracy, then there must always be revolutionary conspiracy, mustn't they? Because if you eliminate that, then nobody needs you anymore. So what they would do, what the Okrana did was essentially manage the revolutionary movements, actually in some cases, pick the targets who they were supposed to assassinate. <laughs> yeah, dude, yeah. And, and, and maintain and that. That way there was always a, a bigger budget for the secret police, and the secret police began to assume a kind of life of their own. That is, it's the, certainly the feeling that I have is that by the time 1917 rolled along, 
the nom, you know, the secret police that nominally served the czar wasn't really serving him at all. They were serving some other sort of interests. Yeah, they were. They were. They were basically were serving their own. And and an interesting thing to note is that the czar's regime is overthrown. Then you got a provisional government. Then when the Bolsheviks come along, one of the things that they decide that they have to do is to set up an intelligence service which is originally a thing called the Cheka, and then that will eventually morph into what will decades later become the KGB. But notice what happens is that the secret police just continue doing their job under different management. And in many cases, it's the same people. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I mean, if you want to take a look at what's going on with unions, the police union, do you know the number one group that is funding pushing back on common sense drug laws are police unions because they know if you eliminate the drug war, so much of their funding goes away. Their, their pensions, their retirements, all that stuff, all that decommissioned military shit that they love to play with. It just gets all taken away. And it's just, you need to, you know, create a problem, create the solution, right? That's kind of what it, what it's about. Once, once they have it, you never, can't get it back. Never let a crisis go to waste. Yep, yep. 100 percent ex- Exploit it in some way. Um, I don't know. Do any of you guys have you ever run across a guy by the name of H.L. Mencken? No, who is that? I love all <laughs> a, this. A, okay, H.L. Mencken, M-E-N-C-K-E-N, was an American journalist, philosopher. He, he had things generally somewhat snarky to say just about everybody. But he was most active back in, in the – in the early teens and 20s in the 20th century. And you don't hear much about H.L. Mencken. If you go out and Google H.L. Mencken quotes, you should read through those because um, Mencken had, um, you know, one of the things that he says uh, basically is that the main function of modern politics, I'm paraphrasing here, but you can find the main function of modern politics is to basically keep the populace afraid of something by inventing a series of hobgoblins to threaten them with, most of which aren't real. Yep, yep. But you always you always have to keep people afraid of something. You always have to be managing this in some way. 100%. Um, but but Mencken has observation. I mean, he has interesting observations about historians, and his his little comment on historians is that they're all basically failed novelists. <laughs> <laughs> Which I wouldn't say is precisely true, and Mike. But you know, there's this certain he's onto something. He he knows something about them. Um, I, I think it was also Mencken who once said uh, that you know there are two things that you know for sure: it is now, and we are here. Everything else is moonshine. <laughs> Everything else you can't be absolutely certain about. You can only be certain where you are at any particular time. So, yeah, Mencken was, um, I, th- I think he was brilliant, and I think he was a very astute observer about things. But, again, it's like somebody telling you that, you know, there isn't a Santa Claus. It's not what most people want to hear. So he's been kind of you know, yeah, sort of set aside uh, is this kind of you no. Know, he's usually described as a great American curmudgeon, but uh, I would say that yes, something you could you 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 wouldn't be wasting an hour of your life if you simply went through and read through a list of H. L. Mencken quotes. We'll I do that they, someday. Any, any, anyone would be illuminated by that. Well, here's uh, what I want. H. Yeah. I want to go back to the secret secret intelligence agency, right? Yeah. So, so I've always had this theory that, 
you know, the CIA, Mossad, MI6, you know, yes, they all are their own separate entity. But in reality, in my humble opinion, they are all of one agency. They're just in, they're just different franchises in different with different names in different cultures. So they each have their own name, which makes them specific to that region. But in reality, they're all above the same group. And I don't even know what that, what group, who that group is. That's my question to you. Do, do you know of any one who might have been in control of the secret intelligence agency? Because I tend to find that very rarely do things just naturally occur. There always seems to be some secret force that gets behind everything. Like when we take a look at like, uh, you know, so many, I, I wonder how, so much, how many revolutions would have actually happened or, or wars or revolutions or, or, or riots would happen naturally if there wasn't some invisible hand with, you know, uh, agent provocateurs involved. Well, think of it this way. You know, the American Revolution, right? The one who created the, the state. An interesting question is the American Revolution would probably not have succeeded if the French hadn't decided to put money into it and militarily intervene. Remember Lafayette? Um, the, the, the French put a huge amount of money. In fact, that, that had a, a consequence in terms of part of the bankruptcy of the French state that led to the French Revolution was their monetary support of the American Revolution. And why did they do that? Was it because the French monarchy loved liberty and all these American ideas? No, <laughs> they, they, they loved the idea of messing with the British. Right. That's, that's, that's what they were going to because the British was perfidious Albion and now they were going to get back they were going to get back of those damned English there's a rebellion in the British colonies we're down for that let's give them some money let's keep that rebellion going and that's it I mean uh, the the origins of the United States are based in foreign intervention and foreign money for their own particular interests playing two sides off against each other Um and, uh, and and an armed movement that seized power. So, I, I got a I mean, question that, to ask that, you. That, that's, that's what we are. And keep in mind, once they seize power, I'm talking about the Continental Congress and, and Continental Army. Once they seized power, they didn't turn around and hold a referendum to see if everybody was down with that. So they just they just held they just they shot their way into power and they were going to keep it. Yeah, I, I, that's the whole thing about that Joe Rogan video that is going around that they're trying to, you know, dismiss as like uh, making like, you know, equivalents to the, the Holocaust and stuff like that, which is not what he was doing at all. But he said once they get power, they very rarely just give it away. I mean, 2001 was 9-11 and we're still dealing with that stuff at the airport. You still got to take your shoes off, and the only way not to take your it, shoes off, yeah, you because, still because one guy tried a shoe bomb, which didn't work. Yeah, it, it was a total failure. wasn't feasible, but for, you still have to take your shoes off because you know. And the only way not to take them off is you got to give them their, your eyeballs. Yeah, yeah, clear. But Rick, I want to ask you about yeah. the the hidden history of that. Uh, the Russians helped Abraham Lincoln. Did you ever hear any of that story? Where uh, well, 
the exam, uh, Alexander II, I believe, came and yeah. sent ships to the mm -hmm. U.S. Uh, shores and said if if uh, if certain European countries came on the side of the South, that uh, Russia was going to get involved because they had just kicked out the quote unquote international banking cabal out of Russia, which is a big part of what led up to kind of some of the stuff we're talking about. Is there any truth to that? Uh, there's truth to it in this sense. Um, Russia, the, the statement that was was often used in the U.S. press after the Civil War was that Russia was our friend when the world was our enemy. So uh, it's no it's no secret that the British were, for the most part, pro-Confederate. They would have loved to have seen the United States split apart. That certainly was. I mean, they're still trying to get revenge for what happened before, right? So that that would have been good for them. The French also, who were you know invading Mexico in this period, um, were favorable towards the Confederacy. So the two strongest European, Western European powers, the British Empire, the greatest power in the world at that point, and the French, were certainly pro-Confederate. They were not friendly towards the uh, Union government in in Washington. Alexander II and the Russians were primary, basically for two reasons. One, if you go back, just you know, it, it's one of these things when anything happens historically or otherwise, the thing it, it always look at what's happened just before and after, what's going on around the same time, because there aren't a lot of coincidences. So, if you go back to just a few years earlier in the 1850s. There was a thing called the Crimean War. In the, in the Crimean War, Britain and France were at war with Russia. And it was a war which you know, the, the Russians lost in the sense that they didn't achieve their goals. Um, it's one of those wars, it's hard to say anybody won in a sense. But there had been this recent war between the Russian Empire and the British and the French. So the Russians aren't happy towards the British and the French. So if the British and the French are favorable towards the Confederacy from the standpoint of St. Petersburg, then we will support whoever they are opposed to. We will stand behind the government in Washington because that seems to be the, because we don't want to see British and French power increase with the collapse of this American Republic. So there was in fact a, a Russian naval flotilla that Whoa. I can't remember whether it was during the war or just after the war that you know, came as, as a kind of, you know, a, a kind of international greeting, which was well received. Russia was praised in the American press as the only European country that, that stood behind the Republic in its time of trial. And then the other thing that happened is that the Americans bought Alaska from Russia. Or so the Russians got the U.S. Uh, Congress to put up the money to buy Alaska, which uh, sounds like it, which the Russians got more money for it than they thought they were going to get. Uh, so there, there's always this sort of and, – and the reason why the Russians wanted to sell Alaska to the United States was because of their fear that if they didn't – that – excuse me – that um, that the British would the British would take it, that they would – because remember, Canada is right next door. Yeah. And Ooh, so the, the, basic, the basic decision was that Alaska is indefensible. There's no way we can defend it. It's too far away. And the British will just come in and grab the thing and, and add it to Canada. But if we sell it to the Americans, one, we get the $6 million. Uh, and in the other hand, dollars uh, we, for Alaska. Well, yeah. And yes. that was called Seward's yeah. folly at the time. I mean, they he was yeah. kind of a yeah. goat for that. 
Uh, well, there are all kinds. You know, one of the plan, early plans for it was to deport all uh, former Confederate fighters to a giant gulag in Alaska. <laughs> oh, man. So that that wasn't considered for long, but that was that's what we can do. We can round up all of these, you know, all of these armed rebels, and we'll send them all off to Alaska. Because see, that's that's what the Russians do with Siberia. So it will become our Siberia. But that didn't happen. But I think that the purchase price was six point two million, and the two hundred thousand was essentially to bribe members of Congress to vote for it. You know so how much? Great. You know how much uh, United States bought Mexico? How much? Eighteen billion. What do you mean bought all Mexico? All of all of like all of Canada, Arizona, Texas used to be part of Mexico, and they sold it for eighteen billion. Oh, you mean? Well, you know yeah, that's why. Whole, that's why there's uh, a big Mormon population in Utah because mm-hmm. when they moved there, it was Mexico. Yeah, and you can have wives over there. They didn't give a fuck. So I want to get into some stuff. There were some notes you sent, but I want to get into the occult in the formation of America. Uh, there's a lot of talk about how a lot of our founding fathers were Freemasons, mm-hmm. uh, and I believe that just like a lot of things... And kind of what we're talking about today, a lot of these groups get infiltrated and double penetrated, okay? Multiple penetration. Okay, multiple penetration. That's more than double. Okay, that's a lot. lot. That's a lot. So that kind of steer these groups in the other direction. So when you take a look at, like, the architecture of, like, Washington, D.C., it has a lot of cult symbolism in it. But I do believe that the Freemasons were corrupted at some point and went into a different direction. What are your thoughts on that? Okay, Freemasonry. Um, the best way I would describe Freemasonry is that it is a how. Okay, let me start by saying that I'm not a Freemason. All right, I don't belong to anything. I've never. I don't even. I couldn't even stay in the Boy Scouts because it was too hierarchical. <laughs> all right, but but I am intrigued. My interest in secret societies and and I, I, can I put in a plug here? Dude, yeah, um, plug away. Bro. Okay, well, one one of the things that uh, I've done uh, there's a thing called the Great Courses, which has now changed to Wondrium. They put out great courses on all kinds of things. But uh, I a course which I did a couple of years ago is called the Real History of Secret Societies. And if you go to the Wondrium website or if you even go onto YouTube. They have some sample videos out there, and that's one of the things that I deal with. And, and I do try in that to simply get down, okay, the, to what the basic facts are and then go on to the different theories about what those facts mean. So the way that I would describe Freemasonry is that it is a house of many rooms, which means that it's not one thing. So think of it this way. There's this big ramshackle mansion we call Freemasonry, but inside of it are all sorts of things that are only, for the most part, tangentially related to each other. So basic things, uh, the origins of Freemasonry are obscure. No one knows. It somehow sort of came out of the late Middle Ages. Um, there, were, there was a the very popular idea that they're somehow linked to the Knights Templars. There's not a scrap of paper anywhere to substantiate that, but somehow by the 18th century, a lot of Freemasons thought they were connected to the Knights Templar. Could be true. The thing is, you just really can't prove it, nor do you have to. That's the, you know, the same way you don't have to prove that Santa Claus exists. Right. But what it means is that the way to think about it is that there's nobody owns the rights to the name. Okay, there's no Freemasonry Incorporated. There are big branches of it. So in in London, for instance, there's a thing called the United Grand Lodge of England and Wales. 
And they have a very big building in downtown London, and that's British Freemasonry. That's that's the Freemasonry that built the British Empire, that most of the members of the royal family belonged to from the 18th century, that most of the British establishment was part of, that Rudyard Kipling was, was, was a part of this. And but that's British Freemasonry and British Freemasonry became a kind in the British Empire and, and American Freemasonry is an extension of that because of you know, the whole British thing. It became pretty much a kind of Freemasonry that was more or less middle class and politically fairly conservative. So you could say that British Freemasonry in, in the British Empire and in the United States, by extension, Freemasonry became the secret society of the establishment. So, for instance, if you were to go back, you know, even today, but certainly in the 19th century, to become a, an American Freemason required a certain amount of money because there was a lot of regalia you had to buy. And, and there's a reason for that, because adding costs onto membership in an organization yeah. keeps out the riffraff. Yeah, yeah. So most yeah. most people who became Freemasons, not all, but most, tended to be well off, and therefore it was a, it was you know as is, is, is you know as, as a Marxist would put it, Freemasonry became another symbol of the bourgeoisie, which it basically did. But there's another side to Freemasonry. And that's French Grand Orient Freemasonry. So in Paris, another kind of Freemasonry arose, and and it was centered around a big lodge, a a kind of controlling organization called the Grand Orient, the Great Eastern Lodge. And the Great Eastern Lodge first showed itself historically in its involvement in the French Revolution. So did, did Freemasons create the French Revolution? No, but were there a hell of a lot of them running around in influential lessons? Yes. Okay. In the, in the same way that if you look at the American Revolution, you tend to find that George Washington is a Freemason, uh, Benjamin Franklin is a Freemason, also a, a, a French Freemason as well. Benjamin Franklin's a very strange guy. Very strange or guy. George, well, you know, Thomas Paine, uh, Thomas Jefferson almost certainly, you can't find his name on any lodge rolls, but considering all the the glowing view that he had of Freemasonry and his personal views, um, it's almost certain that he was. So sometimes you can identify people, sometimes you can't. Because these are private organizations and the membership records are private and people can either advertise this or not. But French Freemasonry, through its connection, became much more radicalized. And so if you look at it, Freemasonry in France or in Italy or Spain or even Germany and then into Russia. Russian Freemasonry is an extension of French Freemasonry. Grand Orient Freemasonry tended to be revolutionary and radical in its views. And therefore, this is one of the, the differences you can find is that English Freemasons tended to be establishment and fairly conservative, not all of them. European continental Freemasons tended to often be connected with what would be considered to be radical or revolutionary causes. So now the two things generally that in any kind of Freemasonry, you know, the, the standard rules, remember the rules, how things are supposed to operate, the two things that you're supposed to avoid uh, you're not, never supposed to discuss in lodge meetings are politics or religion. Those aren't supposed to be involved in it. On the other hand, people talk about politics and religion because people will do what people will do. The other thing to keep in mind is that this is what happens 
in not just a Masonic, but any kind of self-selecting secret society, any kind of lodge organization. A group of people choose as new members people who are considered to be part of their, you know, they're going to choose like-minded people. Right. So a lodge is basically full of like-minded. You all have something in common or you right. wouldn't be there. Right. I agree. And when it's a system in which everyone in the lodge has to agree on the admission of a new member, then you get a good deal of like-minded, like-minded people. Now, so that means that whatever their connection with Freemasonry and its rites and rituals, they probably also share common views in things like politics. So you have a lodge meeting. You go through, you initiate new members, everybody dresses up in their costumes, you do this. <laughs> now, on the other hand, when the lodge meeting is over, the same group of people are there. And then you can start to talk about politics. So the one thing, even though there is supposed to be, by the rules, a, a kind of wall between Freemasonry and between the, the Freemasonry specifically and politics, they inevitably combine in most cases because the lodge itself, what it's doing is that it's bringing like-minded people together and it's binding them together in an atmosphere of mutual support and secrecy. Remember what we said about conspiring before? Yes. So if you wanted to create the perfect conditions to plot a revolutionary conspiracy, that's it. So it's not that this has anything to do with what it is that you know Freemasonry believe, believes. With this, it's, you know what most Masons will tell you is that what Freemasonry about is about brother, you know, brotherhood and and self improvement. And, and I think most Masons that I know are, are quite sincere about that. You know, it, it's fellowship. It's you know, fellowship and self-improvement. You learn to be a better person, and you gain the fellowship of people who were there. There's nothing mysterious or, or, or cult or weird or satanic about it. Well, I think but that it, does, I, it doesn't have to stay that way. That's the whole thing. Yeah. Well, I think that the human nature is that any group, if it's concentrated enough, can get a cult-like feel like you when you when you start to just have like-minded people sitting together with no outside uh, uh point of view it can get very much like a cult i man. mean our last guest Owen benjamin he has people out building houses what he considers a good person people are calling him a cult yeah yeah i mean he's it's not just fucking no one yet i mean but a great example is hollywood i think you look at what's going on in hollywood right now you have a bunch of people who are like-minded, and what eventually happens is it becomes political because they end up talking and talking and talking. And what you were talking about earlier, where you're not supposed to talk religion or politics, now, for some reason, seems to be the common theme. Not so much religion, but more politics. And this, this herd mentality that goes on in L.A. that I think has to do with the fact that you need a billion green lights to get a gig. And if you get one red light, you don't get to work. So you have to bend over backwards to virtual signal to everybody that you're, a ball, you're playing ball, that you're part of the crew. And that's kind of what happens here. Do you just get like-minded people just all co-signing on each other's stuff and I think it just inevitably becomes a cult where it's just like group think and 
uh, conforming to the group think becomes the thing to do. And I, I think there's something to that for sure. Yeah, but it becomes the other term that gets used is echo chamber. Yeah. Where yeah. You, you only hear one, one um, it, it's often argued that the internet by creating chat groups and different, it creates echo, which it does. It, it, you only hear one opinion and it, it simply reinforces this as, as people move it around. And I think in a, in a somewhat modified way, if you go back to Masonic or other lodges, there are, there are a whole endless variety of what we call fraternal organizations or, or secret societies, which were, were very selective. I mean, the, the one thing, uh, something else I do in that series is that I start out by saying, okay, well, how are we going to define, what's a secret society? Well, it's, it's generally not because it's secret. I mean, it's not like people don't know that Freemasonry, I mean, look, Masons advertise their presence on the outskirts of every town. Uh, yeah. yeah. When you drive into a town, there's generally a sign that tells you what organizations are there. Yeah. If there's a Masonic, <laughs> so they're they're not hiding. So what goes on is the old saying goes is that Freemasonry isn't a secret society; it's a society with secrets. That is, its particular its rituals in particular are guarded from those. You you have to be initiated. It's an initiatory society. Yeah. So the way that that works is that, first of all, you're selective in who you recruit. You just can't come in. You have no right to be a member of this organization. You must be chosen. You must, you're must. you vetted. Everybody generally has to agree. And then you're sworn to secrecy. So every time you turn around in Masonic rituals or others, you're, you're, you know, you're swearing your life away, literally or figuratively, uh, that you know, the horrible things will happen to me if I ever reveal any of these secrets. So here's a question I actually had for a Masonic friend of mine. I said, look, I'm not a Mason, and if I want to know, you know, if, if I want to know your rituals, I can go in the internet house and I can figure them out. <laughs> All right. I mean, they're not that hard. And he goes, yeah, that's true. I mean, there are none of our secrets that you, uh, you know, as, as a nosy outsider, they have a term for that, by the way, a Cowan. A Cowan? <laughs> so a, a Cowan <laughs> is, is, is a non-Mason who tries to learn the secrets of, of Freemasonry. Cowan. Uh, and it's not meant as a compliment. So, you know, anybody, <laughs> so, but he goes, that's, he goes, that's not really the point of it. And it never was the point. I mean, there were always people, you know, there were always members who would, betray their oaths and, and tell. So if somebody wanted to figure out the secrets of Masonic rituals, they could do so. He said, that isn't it. The point is the test of character on the person. You swear your you swear your loyalty to the organization, you swear secrecy, and then it's upon you if you break your word. So it's, it's not as if probably you know, the, that the wrath of heaven is actually going to fall on your head, but you'll simply show that you are a untrustworthy, yeah. bad person. Yes. And, and it's a test of your – so you've been told you must keep these things secret even though really they're not secret. But the point is no one is to learn it from you. I love that. There and, and that, that. that's that's the way that this kind of made sense. It was always the sort of test and the character and loyalty of the person who was initiated, and they were told that they had to guard secrets that really weren't secrets, but they weren't going to divulge them. And it's but it's the the thing about I think Freemasonry why it comes up is that yes, it can it is a system that can and often has been easily corrupted for political or other purposes. And if you wanted to find a real example of that, there's none better 
that if you looked at the P2 Lodge in Italy in the 1970s and 1980s, and um, that they're ringing any bells anywhere? No, the P2 but I want to hear about it, please. Okay, well, the P2 Lodge, what P2 stood for was Propaganda Due, Propaganda Lodge Number Two. Okay, that ought to tell you something right there. Yep. You got a lodge whose name is Propaganda, and it's Number Two, which means <laughs> was there a number one? There must be a number one. Um, and, uh, and and indeed there was. But but what this went back to is that it went all the way back to Italy when Italy was unified in the 19th century, and the whole Italian national movement was dominated by people like Giuseppe Mazzini and Giuseppe Garibaldi, and, and they were Freemasons. And, and Freemasonry was used as a means to create this, this revolutionary nationalist movement. So what it was, was that Freemasons like Mazzini and Garibaldi felt that they had effectively unified Italy. And, but they had to unify it under the monarch. They had to you know, do it under the, 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 uh, the Sardinian monarchy. And the point was is that Italian monarch, Freemasons were all Republicans. They were not – now, they didn't really like monarchy, but they had to make a deal. They had to make a compromise. And the compromise is that we get a unified Italy, but we get this stupid king. Now, because we don't trust the king, we're going to have open lodges. You know, there's going to be the kind of public Freemasonry that the king can see and he'll go along with. But then we have to create secret lodges because, you see, really, in the long term, we want to undermine and overthrow this monarchy. And to do that, we have to have secret lodges. So the original Propaganda Uno Lodge was one of these secret lodges that technically didn't exist and which didn't actually support the existing government. That was carrying on continual political propaganda and agitation. And then Propaganda Due appeared after World War II, you know, with the fall of fascism. Uh, Mussolini had suppressed uh, Freemasonry in Italy, so all Freemasons were tended to be anti-fascist. Well, not all, but most. So it, it comes back. But Propaganda Due first was closely, somehow then became closely linked with a kind of neo-fascist movement that wanted to overthrow the Italian government. But then it began recruiting members until eventually this lodge had like eight or 900 people in it. And among its members, among the members of this one so-called secret or black lodge, this kind of hidden lodge, were the heads of all the Italian intelligence services, the heads of all the military services, about 100 members of parliament, media figures like, uh, ever heard of a guy named Silvio Berlusconi? No, we haven't. He, he was a member. Okay. He, he, this was the guy who would then later go. After the lodge was exposed, Berlusconi still went on to become you know, prime minister five different times in Italy. But the whole thing was entirely corrupt. It was a secret government. It was a secret government, and it would be – let's put it this way. P2 had most of the powerful people in Italy, business figures, military figures, intelligence figures, all sort of operating. It had ties to both the Socialist Party and the neo-fascists. It even had ties to the Communist Party. It, it had tentacles in, in all of the different political parties, but it wasn't a political party. And it also had connections to the CIA. Why not? I mean, the CIA is not going to ignore this. And so what you had 
was this this secret government. And it was also connected to the Vatican. And the whole thing began to unravel when this particular Italian banker by the name of Roberto Calvi was involved. This this big bank in Italy failed, the Banco Ambrosiano, one of the biggest banks in in Italy and also very closely tied to the Vatican Bank and also closely tied to the mafia. And Roberto Calvi had uh, fled Italy to avoid criminal charges and he went to London and then he was found hanged under Blackfriars Bridge with bricks in his pocket. Oh my God. And, And the significance of that is that generally it's a kind of Masonic assassination. Okay, the bricks in his pocket, the whole, you know. And so it was initially thought it was a suicide. Eventually they figured out there's no way that, you know, people could commit suicide that way. So he was murdered. I think that's still unsolved. But the investigated, the whole Benko Ambrosiano thing then opened up more and more and more. And that's what eventually exposed the presence of P2, that all of these people were members of this one weird, you know, one strange Masonic Lodge. And that then set off a whole series of criminal trials that, you know, resulted in criminal convictions and then acquittals and then more criminal convictions and more acquittals. None of the principals ever seemed to spend any real time in jail or they suddenly were poisoned in jail. There's a whole series of murders connected to it. Oh, my God. Um and it's and so P2 was was then exposed. And what this led to by the end of the 1980s was pretty much the collapse of the whole Italian political system. I mean, parties collapsed and because everything was seen as being corrupted. By the way, nothing really changed after that. It continued to be corrupted. But there was this exposure and this this huge scandal that, that swept the whole country. But behind this was this secret this unaffiliated, this this Masonic Lodge that even the official Masonic Lodge pretended that it didn't recognize, even though that it did, and uh, and there were there were ties between the P two Lodge and other lodges in Spain, with Juan Perón and and his return to power in in uh, in Argentina. Um, you know, for a while, when the, when the head of P2 had to flee, he, he fled off to Argentina, and then he initiated Juan Perón into this lodge. So it's, uh, it's a story which we still only know parts of. But that, that gives you an idea of, of the sort of secret side of history. Remember, this, this, the P2 lodge wasn't, any, it wasn't political. It wasn't, uh, it, it was really just about power. It, it was a way to exercise power through all of the different, you know, people were voting for different political parties that they thought were opposed to each other. And what you don't realize is that they all belong to the same Masonic Lodge. Yes, <laughs> that's exactly yeah. what's happened in this country, right? And left, D's and R's, all are dancing to the same dance. So you're bringing up Freemasons, assassinations, uh, and you brought him up earlier. Can you tell us a little bit about James Shelby? Downard? James Shelby. Okay, if you go into another thing, which I I have probably too much curiosity about, there's a guy by the name of James Shelby Downard who, let's say, is usually ranked as uh, a kind of obscure American conspiracy theorist from the middle of the 20th century. So Downard... 
Downer was born around, I think he was born in like 1912, 1913, died in the 1990s, had a fairly long life, didn't really become very active on the so-called conspiracy scene or the conspirosphere until really the 1970s and 80s. And it was one of these things that, you know, his writings would sort of initially be apparently mimeographed and then circulated around and there were tapes of him giving talks in different subjects. Downard is... Um, it's difficult to describe. I'm pretty sure that Downard was insane. <laughs> now, by that I mean he was, well, he was definitely paranoid. That doesn't necessarily mean he's insane, but he had a very strange view of the world. And there's a, if anybody wanted an introduction to it, um, there's a book by Adam Gorightly called, um, James Shelby Downard's Mystical War. It's a very short book. And 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 uh, Adam Gorightly, and I contribute to this, is going to come out with an, an expanded version of that pretty soon, I hope. Uh, that's one of the things that's coming. That sort of gives you an introduction to it. And then also, um, Feral House, um, a publisher some years back, published a, a Downard's autobiography or at least part of his autobiography and it sort of just describes the experiences in his childhood and, and up through up through early adulthood and it's called the carnivals of life and death that is one of the few books i've ever read i've read quite a few of them but there's one of the few books i've ever read that it, while reading it i would get so frustrated and disgusted by what i was reading I would, I would literally throw it against the wall. <laughs> I would go, yeah, I don't know how you expect me to believe this crap. And I would, I would <laughs> throw it because it was, it just told the story that seemed to be completely unbelievable. And there's no way I can do it justice here, except that try to imagine a, a childhood growing up in, you know, 1920s, Texas and Oklahoma, where he grew up places like Dallas and, you know, Ardmore, Oklahoma. And, uh, and you're growing up in a world in, in which your parents are apparently conspiring to kill you, <laughs> but, but not, not, you know, but conspiring to, to have you murdered in elaborate ways by, you know, sort of like weird Ku Klux Klan Masonic neighbors and some kind of ritual sacrifice. That again, now you're going to say that doesn't make any sense. Well, it really doesn't, but it's, it's this sort of nightmarish description of, of, of a child sort of growing up with all of these sort of currents of very strange conspiracy and adult actions going on around you. And, and it, and it creates this, you know, Downer's world is a world of almost of, of total paranoia. Okay. Everything and everyone is, is out to get you in some way that there's always sort of ulterior motives as to whatever is going on. And, and much of what he describes is just seemingly unbelievable. And, and really, I, I can't think even practically that most of it ever happened. But the point is, where does this idea get into somebody's head? But the other thing about it is that amongst all of this, this madness, He's really, he's talking about real places and real people. 
So for a long time, there was a debate in certain circles as to whether or not James Shelby Downard was a real person. And an opinion was divided on that. Um, some would argue that he was a literary invention of Adam Parfrey or, you know, the group of people got together and decided we're going to create this goofy character and we'll all come up with different weird things for him to do. People do that. So that he never actually existed. So one of the things that I started out, you can find it various places on the web. It's been published. It's an article I wrote, which continues to expand as I find more, called Searching for James Shelby Downard. Uh, it has another title you can find it, find it under. It's a thing called In the Limbo of Lost Memories, because that's what Downard would often talk about. He was, he was trying to recover memories of things that had happened to him. But... What I determined of that is that yes, he was he was a real guy. He absolutely was real. Um, and and if you go through his autobiography and you look at the people he met and when they meet them, they're all real. So, on one level, he's talking about real play people and and real events in real places, but he's casting them in very very strange. He's adding his own sort of strange experiences to this. So it's not just this sort of tale told by a madman that makes no sense. It, it actually has this real structure to it. But it's this sort of um, down. The best I can come to is to sort of, if you were going to make a movie out of this, the only person who could do it justice is David Lynch. <laughs> All right. So, if you, if you ever know what David, okay, David, you know, Twin Peaks, Mulholland. Okay, this is like, if you've ever seen Mulholland Drive, yeah, tell yeah. me, tell me what that's about. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that's an what, insane. What, movie. what in that movie is? I mean, you're watching it and you know that something's going on, right? Yeah. There are these care, but but you can never. I, I've watched that movie probably at least seven or eight times. Yeah, me too, me too. And, and you can come to different interpretations, but it, on the one level, what you're seeing makes sense, and yet overall it just seems... I mean, there's, 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 some, there's some way that you can't connect all of these things together somehow. Well, that's what Downard's whole sort of conspiratorial paranoid view things. It, it's, the, it's, it's a Lynchian universe. Okay, you have to imagine an entire universe which has been created by David Lynch, <laughs> and and this, and this is how Downer's situation. So it's 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 like the rantings of a madman, but then at some point you realize that he's not mad, and and he actually will sometimes reference things that seem to be. You'll go, well, you know, that sounds vaguely familiar, <laughs> or that's not quite as crazy as it seems. So. What it actually, as far as you can, I, I can construct his 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 life in a sense beyond what he says is that at some point as an adult, Downard came to believe that his previous memories had been erased, that he had been subjected to some kind of either torture or procedure he makes these vague references to being held in some sort of hospital or facility out in the desert in some godforsaken wilds of nevada or something and and that his memories were erased and replaced with other ones but then what would happen was that his original memories would begin to bleed through so in his writing in, in something like his autobiography, what he has here is this kind of combination, is, is his attempt to recover what he thinks those original memories were. 
But even he isn't sure whether this is actually what happened or this is this is how his real memories have now been combined. They, you know, they, those and the, and the false memories have combined together. But in many ways, I kind of look at it. It's, it's a man who was who was trying to recover his own sanity, who had had some kind of catastrophic, some sort of traumatic mental breakdown. And, and for a couple of decades, he just disappears. You can't find anything about him. He basically vanishes around 1945, and then he crops up again living in a trailer somewhere in Arizona in, in 1965. And for what he's – I mean, I suspect he was institutionalized for a while, but um, there's you know, no details on that available. But it's this, this – tale of there's also this kind of mk ultra paul over this it's one of the things if you want to begin to read things into it you can argue that he was somehow part of some sort of experiment some kind of mental experiment with memory or he was used to do something and his memories were erased so there's this whole mystery around the man there's 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 a mystery about what the what he became most famous for and if, if somebody was going to look at it, is a document that originally which is circulated, you can now find it in a number of places, called King Kill 33. King Kill 33 was Downard's sort of Lynchian take on the JFK assassination. So, yes, now we've gone to the JFK assassination. <laughs> yes. Does involve Bigfoot. His whole his whole view of this was that the JFK assassination was an elaborately orchestrated ritual sacrifice. There's talk about that for sure. And well, if you find talk, most of that probably goes back to Downard. I'm not, you know, there are others, but you know, the idea this was a this was a ritual sacrifice, and and so Downard was very much into this thing he called mystical toponymy. Which meant the, the 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 mystical or occult significance of place names. So, if you go through King Kill Thirty Three, he will explain to you why Dealey Plaza is is particularly you know significant for this, and it's significant because of its proximity to the thirty third degree of latitude. It's prox you know it, it, the Kennedy name has mystical associations. and that all of this, in his view, is also connected to this kind of of underground form of, of Freemasonry, which I don't, again, don't think has any connection to sort of normal everyday Freemasonry. But um, I mean, I, I put it this way. My, uh, I'm not a Freemason, but on one side of my family, a lot of people were, and I don't think they were doing anything weird. <laughs> um, well, I don't know. But, you know they, weren't, they weren't doing anything particularly weird. <laughs> but... Um, it would be hard to put them in into in, into this kind of unit, but again, it, it, it's that house of many rooms. It's it's a label under which a lot of things can operate, and it's so he's all you know. He's always talking about mystical Freemasons and and you know sex rites and and and, and a lot of it seems to revolve around his wife, this woman that he married. And who then he believed became this kind of, uh, you know, sort of high priestess uh, in, in various, you know, bizarre occult sexual rites. And it's, 
it's one of those things that, that it's kind of fascinating because, again, well, much of it just seems to be one guy's mental problems <laughs> not put on paper. They're, they're fit into, into a real world. And, there's, and it comes back to this you know, question again is that like how much of this could be true? Because I'll guarantee you this. If James Shelby Downard wasn't batshit crazy, if what he's talking about was mostly true, then we live in a much stranger, weirder, more dangerous world than you could ever imagine. I don't think any of us really want to do that, do we? Well, I think that's a big part of why a lot of people don't like to talk conspiracies, don't like conspiracy theorists, because... It exposes them to a world that uh, they're afraid of. A lot of people bring kids into the world, and they don't want to think they live in this chaotic world. People got pregnant during COVID. What was wrong with you? Yeah, yeah. Well, I had them before. Thank you, God. You were right before. But though. the point, the point is this: is that you know, there's always a little truth in everything. To what extent, I don't know. And sometimes I think, and I'm not saying about this gentleman, but sometimes. There are people who are pushed forward that say crazy stuff to make the truth community look nuts. But when you break down what they're actually saying, because at the time that everybody becomes exposed to them, they look crazy. But as time goes by, you go, oh, he was right about a lot. I say that about Alex Jones. I was about to say, Alex Jones is like the main guy. Want, right? but, so my question as we wrap it up here, because I appreciate you spending time with me, my question to you is this. How much of his writings, as we look back on it, seem to have become true or have some truth to them? Well, I think there's... He makes references, and I'm looking forward. He, he makes references in, in his autobiography to this, to again, another kind of obscure figure by the name of uh, uh, Arthur Manby, who was this very, who was an, an Englishman who came over to the United States around the turn of the 20th century and moved to Taos, New Mexico, and became the sort of terror of the, the place for the next 20 years, trying to accumulate ownership of all of these land grants. And formed his own secret society, his own sort of murder group. <laughs> I mean, Manby was was on the one hand this sort of of occult adept combined with a criminal. Uh, he was also a Freemason, by the way. But I think that's you know it's only a, a minor aspect of Manby. And the thing is, is you could find there, there are very few mentions of Manby anywhere, and yet he shows up as someone who is a kid. He, of course, he's like his. You know, Downard mentions his mother going off and holding court with Manby. And then there are references to Manby's activities in Mexico and his shenanigans with mines and with these counterfeit bills called you know, million dollar gold certificates. Yes, it's actually a certificate. It's like a, you know, a million dollars in gold, <laughs> which, which are supposed, which kind of exist, but then don't exist. Um, I mean, they were never supposed to be in, in circulation. But those are the type. The other thing that that he'll mention is um, the, the Millionaires Club on, on Jekyll Island, which was this uh, very private club on an island off the coast of Georgia, mm-hmm. where all the big shots uh, on American Wall Street in the early 20th century had private houses. I mean, this 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 was the most exclusive club 
in America, which again was not generally known. But somehow, this Dowder guy knows about that, and he knows about he knows about Manby. And I think the main thing that sort of goes ahead with this is that is that what Dowder, if he's warning about anything, other than again being this kind of litany of of insanity, but if there's any kind of warning to be taken out, it's this constant thing about that there are people who are mentally manipulating. You know, he, he argues that he's, his mind, you know, what he's basically describing is this kind of psychic rape, this kind of mental manipulation that someone messed with his mind. And the implicit warning of what he's saying is that there is people, all of us are having our minds messed with. And it, it can distort our whole view of reality. Yeah, yeah. And while I think that it, while you can dismiss that as simply paranoid delusion what you have to compare that with is that if you look around you, if you're reasonably aware and you look at the world around you and you look at your own experiences and you look at other people, can you really say that that doesn't happen? It does in some degree. You know, it's, it's like influencers. You know, this, this, this whole thing and the people that are using this term of, of the – the whole internet is a mechanism for one for gathering huge amounts of information, which let's face it is really what Facebook and the rest of them are after. They want to know what you're interested in. And the thing to keep in mind is that everything you click on, every YouTube video you click on, every link you click on is revealing a psychological profile. Oh. And eventually those things can be used to map out your mind. And that's the kind of data, that's that's the type of thing that could be collected. And then the question to ask yourself without being too paranoid about it is, what the hell are they going to do with that? Are they just going to try to sell you things? Or are they going to find out other ways to manipulate you? And that's the only, you know, the only thing I kind of see if there's a if, if, and there's a big if, if there is a cautionary element or tale anywhere in the, in the Downard saga, it's in this idea of mass psychological manipulation. And I think that now, particularly with the advent of the digital age, the means to do that has achieved almost alchemical proportions. I completely agree with all that. Uh, you know, it's like That's scary. there is no, there is no uh, reality. There's perception, and we are allowing the internet and outside influences to uh, affect our perception and and change the the prism in which we see everything. And I think that is both scary and, if you harness it correctly, beautiful. I mean, like, you know, it's like you know the 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 power of positive thinking, you know, uh, you know, it's, it's like, uh, empower, you know, it's like abundance and all those things. When you practice these things, you know, things start changing for your life. So I think it's, it can be used for both good and, yeah. and evil manifest it. He has a bunch of wonderful books. I hope you guys check it out. I will include the links to all of his books. Uh, if there is a website you would prefer, Rick, please let me know. But he's got eight, Secret Agent 666, Aleister Crowley, British Intelligence Cult, The Real History of Secret Societies, Wall Street, and The Revo uh, Russian Revolution. That is, I, I'm going to get that book. 
Trust No One, The Secret Society, Sid Riley, Crimes of the Century, Selective History of Infamy, and Alistair Crowley, Agent 666. Uh, all those books are right down my alley. And uh, I hope that uh, The Swarm buys a bunch of them. Final thoughts, sir? Uh, well, it, it's been up. We've been talking about a lot. Of, I mean, it's um, there's always more. This This is what keeps me interested in, in mysteries is that there's always more to learn. Okay. Never assume, you know, everything trust no one. <laughs> it's, it's a, I mean, I think of nothing else We're we're kind of living in an atmosphere right now where you, and I think in some cases you have to question your sanity on a daily basis because you're being told one thing and you observe something else. That's the way I feel. I mean, I'm being told that all of these terrible things are happening, and I look around me, and I, I, I don't see this. That doesn't seem, it doesn't seem, you know, the way I'm told things are isn't the way that I actually see them. I don't see Santa Claus, all right? <laughs> I, 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 I don't see what that's there. And I think it's, uh, you got to trust in your own perceptions, okay? And if you don't see it, the reason is it's almost certainly not there, or you're not looking hard enough. I totally yeah. agree with that. I 100% agree with that. And, you know, we've been having a lot of great episodes. This is obviously uh, one of them as well. And, uh, you know, they talk a lot about, you know, the, the powers that be want to change the laws of God and nature. And that's kind of the, what the original sin was, is that, you know, man thinks he could change the rules and change the laws and uh you know a lot of these secret societies are trying to do that they got dark arts uh, occult um history and beliefs and they think they're gonna they can flip a lot of stuff and we see it happening in real time in pop culture but you know i i find when i get off the internet i get off social media I don't interact. I, I all that stuff kind of goes away, and we do live in a beautiful place, and that's mm. kind of what we gotta look at. Uh, Rick, one more time, where can they find you? Uh, well, I the best place to look for my works, particularly the the crimes of the century and secret societies, is on the Wondrium website. W o n d r i u m. Uh, used to be called Great Courses, still is. Wondering is the place you can find my work. I'm also working now. One of the things that I'm writing on uh, for them it will be a 24 episode um, Secrets of the Occult. <laughs> so uh, I, I continue my my unhealthy interest, and hopefully that will be out sometime sometime next year. And what is the? How do you spell the website? Wondrium. W o n d r i u m. Wondrium. All right, Wondrium. All right, I'll make sure to please. Uh, you have our email. Please email us any uh, links you want us to include in the description. I appreciate okay. you uh, coming on. It was a great conversation. It was. It was my pleasure. And, talking to you. and we'd love to have you back whenever you're uh, ready sure. to uh, deal with us again. So thank you very much. We appreciate you, Rick. You came. You saw. You kicked a whole lot of butt. I appreciate your time with us, and look forward to doing it again. I love you all very much, and I hope to see you in Miami. Take care, everybody. Thanks for joining us again, and I love you, Swarm. Have a great week. We go deep, homeboy. Aaron, open your mind. Drink from the fountain of knowledge. There's lizard people everywhere. That's some interdimensional shit. Wake up, Aaron. This is only the beginning. There's 
You just blew my mind. Tim foil hack. Tim foil hack.